Welcome to Talking in Stations broadcast. Broadcast about EVE Online, recorded live on Twitch, Saturdays, 1500 Universal Time. I am your host, Matterall, from Destructive Influence Corp. and NC Dot. Streaming the broadcast is McLeod from The Initiative. EVE Online is a sci-fi computer game played around the clock by people all over the world. Politics, sovereignty, trade, economics, and war have created a 14-year continuum of history, all created by the players. Today we have a special program featuring Andrew Groen, author of Empires of Eve, a book chronicling the history of Nullsec empires of the first decade of the game. We also have two of the biggest names in Eve history, Sir Mole, leader of Band of Brothers, and Celine, founder of Mercenary Coalition. We'll introduce them in just a minute. If you would like to show your support for the show, you can contribute through Patreon slash Matcherall. On behalf of the team, I'd like to thank you for the continued support. Andrew Groen created Empires of Eve, a history of the great wars of Eve Online, a book that he created from scratch. He raised nearly $100,000 himself, arranged for contributors, and managed the process. Years later, the first history book of the rich stories of old empires were preserved for future generations. His latest work is a reading from that book in audio version. Uh, welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. This is really cool. Thank you. Sir Molly, few names ring out through Nullsec, like the name Sir Molly in the Band of Brothers. Bob, as it's known, was a collection of some of Eve's best players, and Sir Molly was their leader and spokesman. At the core of Bob was Evolution, Sir Molly's Corp. In many ways, the game that we play today was shaped in the early days by these players. Long before there were any goons in the game, Sir Mole was a champion for Jamel Sarum, a Titan pilot for Evolution, and an Empire Crusher with a band of brothers. For many players, veterans or new players, this is the first time they will hear your voice. Welcome to the show, Sir Mole. Good morning, ladies. <laughs> Selene and fellow mercenaries pioneered the high guns lifestyle of some of the elite alliances today. Mercenary Coalition was the first actual mercenary alliance in EVE and was a fierce enemy that could fight outnumbered and win. Their biggest client was Band of Brothers. They fought together through the Great War, but ultimately opposed each other on the field when MC sought to find a home in period basis, the Tortuga campaign. Selene is no common player, Besides being a storied FC, he was a political leader and spokesperson, and a game developer for CCP. He later became a member of the Council of Stellar Management for CSM 6 and 7. Welcome to the show, Celine. Hello, everybody. Today we're going to do a walk through history. Uh, we have great guests, so we're going to take advantage of every minute. So we'll just get right to it and start talking about Old Eve and what it used to be like, because the game, as we know, was different back then. During this show, feel free to write questions inside of chat, and we will try to get to them if we can at the end with a question and answer period. It's going to be a special show, a little bit longer than usual. And before we start, I'd like to introduce Carneros. Good morning. And he's going to be helping me with uh, moderating today. Not moderating, hosting. All right. Uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about, it goes to Andrew, and that is... Um, Kickstarter. Looks like you had a successful Kickstarter. You got any advice? Um, I'm not sure if I have actually any any advice, except 
probably the best bit of advice that I do have. Okay, I do have a little bit of advice. Uh, if you go on Kickstarter, don't try to make any money because you won't. <laughs> because that's not how it turns out. That's actually not how it works. And also, if you try to make money on Kickstarter, uh, you'll look like a jerk and everyone will hate you. So uh, don't try to make any money. That's my, <laughs> that's, that's my tip. I can go yeah. more in depth if you'd like about how to not make any money. On a serious note, there is a, a real contrast to be made by the Kickstarter that you proposed and the Kickstarter that was proposed months later through the Matani.com that was going to be another historical book, but it was only going to be about the Fountain War, and it was supposed to be the first book of many funded by the station, which is now INN. And it did seem a real contrast in presentation and a real contrast in success and failure. So I thought it was interesting that people would really go beyond your expectations and give you more money than you asked for hmm. um, in order to build it up. What do you think the major difference was? Well, I think one of the major differences, um, and, and I think, you know, the Matani talked a little bit about this when uh, this that whole thing was happening Um which was that there was sort of an, an, an optics difference, whereas mine kind of started out as this very, very small project. My original goal for the Kickstarter project was like $12,000 because ultimately what I wanted was just to uh, raise enough money to be able to print like 1,000 copies of the book. Like I, in my head, I was picturing myself like selling these out of the back of uh, a trunk of a car. Like I didn't, I didn't yeah. think that people were actually going to care yet. Like in my mind, the way it was going to work was like, um, it would be really interesting to get people curious about the project, but they, it would be really hard to get them to pay money for it. Um, and the reason for that was one, because I was an outsider in the Eve community at the time. So I had no expectation that the Eve community was going to trust me to do this from the outset. And that I, I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to convince people before I had written the book who, did, who weren't familiar with Eve, just how incredible the story actually was. Um, and so I, I set my sights ex extremely low just trying to get the bare minimum off the ground and it's just it's a better it's a better look for kickstarter it's it feels more like kickstarter what kickstarter is supposed to be like and um and one of the things that the Matani talked about in in sort of the retrospective about about that project was sort of the optics of asking for a large sum of money even if that sum of money is pretty much what you need to pull off a project of that scale like writing a book with a professional author is it costs a huge amount of money uh, to be able to actually turn a profit on it. And so some, some of the things that happened that were mostly in terms of optics, that people really just didn't like the way that it looked when it, it, you really don't want to go to somebody looking looking flashy when you're asking them for money. And and those were just some, some just sort of optics mistakes and there's a lot that went on in in that project but it's not my project so i can't right. deal too much i can i can speak from a fan perspective and a reader perspective because that was something that i i, I really wanted to happen i was i was hopeful that that project was going to come through because like any written project that documents some version or some portion of Eve's history is valuable uh, to someone like me to be able to go back and look at that stuff later on. And even if it's skewed or something like that, you can kind of unskew it by understanding someone's perspective. So the more that we write down, the more valuable it is. And I was kind of disappointed we lost the whole thing. Yeah. There used to be a tradition of uh, historians. Uh, did you rely on their writings much or were they too biased? Was that for me? Yeah. Uh, what kind of historians? Corporation historians, where oh, they would just corporation historians yeah. are, are the best. Like corporation historians <laughs> are like the, the the front line of this stuff. Um, so most of the time, when I would find something 
like all, all the early stories of Eve Online, like the stuff that I was that I was reporting from like 2003 or 2004, almost all of them had some kind of um, like historical anchor in time um, because I, I found like one person's website or I found like one person's private journal or something like that or the forum history, like forum histories. If you've written a forum history, like, thank you, I've probably read it. Um, and, and things like really long wiki histories and stuff like that are what got me in to studying even in the first place. Um, and so, yeah, people, it, it, it's very difficult to write a corporation history because you don't understand the larger context of what's going on around you. Uh, but ultimately, like, that's okay. Like, that's someone like mine's job uh, to come in and, and combine all of the perspectives together. Um, you don't have to feel like just because you don't understand the grand galactic perspective that your perspective isn't important. Like it, the more perspectives that you can combine together in, in the final pastiche of stories is, is going to be a whole lot better. Like there's some really awesome moments, I think, in Empires of Eve. Some of my favorite moments in Empires of Eve are just sort of like the ramblings of everyday pilots talking about what it's like to be there at the time. Like one of the, I think probably my favorite line in Empires of Eve is this, 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 uh, I think it was a German guy uh, who kept bouncing around from alliances that kept getting conquered by goons. And he just goes like, he just, there's this one line where he's like, I go to Veritas Immortalis, goon takes my space. I go to, you know, the Northeast, goon takes my space. I go to this next alliance, goon takes my space. And like that sentence, that, that everyday pilot perspective, like you can't get that anywhere else. It, it adds so much, and it's. I guess it would be better than somebody trying to reach out and figure out what the other side was thinking, because then it's just conjecture. But if you're writing about what you experienced, then that's that's the actual first person uh, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Like no, nobody understands what the other people are thinking. If you try, you're definitely wrong. So don't don't try to do that. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So you know, you put together this great book, and um, we've enjoyed reading it and now listening to it. Uh, are actually a very good presenter as well. So people have seen you in conventions and stuff like that. I imagine there will be more. I mean, you can't, you can't just have one of these. It looks like there's lots of room for more. There's definitely plenty of room for more. Uh, the There's, in, in my head, like at least three other books that I want to write about Eve's history. And like, that's a very conservative uh, number. Like in my, if I was imagining it, there's like eight or nine. just like lined up next to each other on my bookshelf. Um, whether or not I'll actually get a chance to do that is is another thing. Uh, right now, right now, I'm working on a, a podcast that's like uh, if you've ever listened to Hardcore History, um, it's basically the retelling of Eve Online's history in that sort of presenter way that I do at, at conventions in a way that's like a little bit more. It's, it's a lot easier to get into than an admittedly pretty dense history book. Um, and so that's my, that's my focus right now is like kind of continuing to proliferate the basic. Nelsec canon, you know, so that people, the more and more people can understand exactly how absurd and, and rich and cool <laughs> this story is. Like, that's yeah. what I want people to know is how is the absurd part. Like, people understand it's cool, but they don't understand yet all the weird twists and turns that the history takes that make it worth reading. Um, and that's yeah. what I'm trying to get out to people more. Yeah. And if you listen to the audiobook, which again is great, uh, you're going to miss the little leaflet, these little stories that he puts in the side of a few pages that are really rich like those are great little nuggets of uh stuff like i remember the one with stain alliance versus curse alliance and how uh, stain alliance wouldn't say anything so they appeared robotic like the board <laughs> until one day they finally did and it was uh do you remember what they said 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There was the, it was this old war back in like 2003 between the old Stain Alliance and the old Curse Alliance, and um, yeah, it was it was one of the it was an old CCPer who was leading Stain Alliance at the time uh, at Limar, um, a CCP Praetorian, and he was telling me this story about how they they developed a strategy within Stain Alliance to just try to appear completely terrifying to the Curse Alliance, and so their strategy was to never say anything. So when they would jump in, they would they had a complete policy of no chatter and local whatsoever. And if one of their group broke that like that line, if they started like smack talking in local, whatever, they would shoot down their own ship. They were like completely hardcore about this, just to appear like this like Spartan disciplined force or whatever. And so there's this pitched battle that happens one day and it's like clearly climactic and everybody kind of knows it and uh, stain alliance takes the field from curse alliance and the praetorian comes out and he's the first person to type in chat in like months and he just types collect your dead <laughs> I love that. and everybody goes nothing like I've, I've talked to people from curse alliance who like remember that years later because it was so impactful that this dude just shows up the first time he ever talks collect your dead <laughs> Terrifying. He's, he's an amazing guy, uh, Atli Maur. He's he's Icelandic, platinum blonde, uh, uh, and he can he speaks perfect English and really 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 good Chinese and Icelandic, of course. He's really smart. He, yeah, I remember I talked to him at like two a.m. out of their their Shanghai office. <laughs> oh, he's down there. Well, you would know Carneros because you worked for CCP as uh, yeah. along with Celine. So we got some CCPers in here. Um, and I think that one of the funniest parts for me was the response was like, are, are you real? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Curse didn't really know how to approach him so that I could see them kind of like slinking on, collecting their wreckage and moving off before. But anyway, those stories are delicious. They're in the book. Um, you should get it. And last question about the book. Um, sure. do you think, uh, or why was it worth making? Obviously you think it was worth making. Why was it worth making? Okay. Uh, long, long answer. Right? That's a whole other show. Oh, okay. it's so worth making. Like this was the most, it was honestly the most enlightening experience of my entire life. Like I, I, I learned more about reporting. I became a better reporter. I, I feel like every time I do something new in life, I'm, I'm referencing back to like what I learned doing empires of Eve and what I learned from eve and like i it's impossible not to feel even though this is probably a mental delusion it feels like i can understand like global politics better because i spent two years studying uh diplomatic relations within eve that's probably not true and that's probably not good for me to think <laughs> but but it does feel that way and and it, it's it was worthwhile because it was an incredible learning experience and and honestly because I, I get to talk to people like at FanFest and stuff like that. And it just sees that it makes them happy. And, and you, you know, I, I know how many copies it sold. And so I, I expand across the number of copies it sold. I'm like, that's a lot of people who had a nice time with something that I did. And that feels really good. And yeah. I'd like to do that again sometime. Yeah, terrific. And it did do well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Check out that book. Uh, you can buy it through Amazon. I'll put the link inside a chat. And it's also an audio book. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, it's worth it because it's not just a history book, but it is the living, evolving Eve online. And and we'll talk about that in just a second. Eve is is was a whole different place back then, but it is the era that built up everything that echoes to this day, as far as mechanics, as far as politics. 
and as far as philosophy of organization. That's what we'll talk about today to some degree. So let's talk about early Eve. I guess we'll go to Celine and Sir Mole, and probably Sir Mole first. How did you hear about Eve Online? Well, uh, we were a group back in Homeworld, actually, back then, and Homeworld was kind of dying and closing down. So we started actively looking for something that fits what we did, and we found EVE Online at that time in beta. So we started planning for just joining EVE Online and starting playing it. Had your group met up in person during Homeworld days, or did that not come until after you had moved over to EVE Online? That came after we moved over to EVE Online. Uh, that was by coincidence, more or less. It wasn't anything planned. It just happened, and then it just grew from there. I know what you're referring to. So yes, the barbecue is still on. But your first, how long had you been in EVE before your first barbecue? Uh, I think the first barbecue was 2004. And I mean, we started EVE uh, before beta. We started EVE in the alpha stages. So that would have been three years, maybe four years. I'm not sure exactly how long the alpha and beta stages were, but they were long. And Celine, when did you uh, hear about EVE? I was playing uh, a very old uh, game some people might remember called Earth and Beyond with a group of old army buddies. And uh, so there were about 15 or so of us. And I can't remember exactly where I saw the first screenshot of Eve, but uh, it was a picture of a Bantam undocking from one of those big cavalry stations. And the scale of it just seemed so much greater than the cartoony bullshit that you were doing in, in Earth and Beyond. I'm like, I had to go check this out. And I think I downloaded the beta client after I got approved in like beta four, beta five. And uh, that's and I got, you know, got folks on the phone, met them at a pizza hut, says, okay, everybody has to go download this. We're going to do this now. And that's kind of where uh, I started. And yeah, I wrote it on from there when the actual, when the actual game went public, I had to actually wait two weeks for the army PX in Germany to get a physical copy of it before I could actually play the game because they didn't even allow you to download the client back when it first came out. Now, at that point, you guys, your army buddies, you're not all sitting right next to, you're not all uh, necessarily living in the same country or anything. When was the first time you guys met up in, in person in RL? Oh no! Actually, we were uh, most of uh, most of my, most of my buddies were all stationed uh, in Germany at uh, you know within about twenty or thirty miles of each other. And ironically, it was also our Dungeons and Dragons gaming group. So <laughs> we'd been playing, nice. We'd been playing together for a little while, but um, you know, to be honest, I think that out of out of those dozen or so people that helped get things kicked off in the old days. I'm actually only in contact with about one of them anymore and that only that actually still plays Eve. So um, it's, you know, things, people come and go and so forth, but yeah. So let's talk about Eve and how it was back then, because it was pretty much a simplified game compared to what it is now. Some of the things that uh, you could do back then, you didn't have to think about all the exceptions and stuff like that, but can you tell us, let's just go through a few topics here. What were the corporations like when it first started? My corporations were very simple. I mean, everything was more simplified. If you strip off what you have today, like 90% of it doesn't, didn't exist. 
you had very simple mechanics to actually be able to create a corporation and hand that. So you were everything you did, if you needed to do something, you needed to do it out of game. You didn't have any in-game mechanics or anything more or less. Yeah, and there were no alliances initially, so corporations were your alliance. Yeah, that was it. And I think they kind of upped it after six months. I think the max you could have from the beginning was 50 people, and that was all. Oh, max 50. Yep. I, I always want to go back to this because I think if you're listening, Andrew Groen talk about the or talk in the audiobook uh, or reading it, you'll find that a lot of fights 10, 15 people versus 10, 15 people. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, the wars could be a corporation of 20 people, as you say, to, versus another corporation of 20 people. And if you actually got 40 people on the battlefield, that was massive and enormous. Yeah, and at the time, it kind of seems like it would still be massive. We're used to these numbers that are just gargantuan now, but compare it to a different raid game or whatever you're fighting, or PvP game, five on five or four on consider a match. And then a big match would be 10 or 12 people fighting each other. And then you get to EVE, and already in 2003, you're talking about more than that. Well, yeah, I mean, from the betas, the last thing we did in the betas was a massive war more or less uh, just within a couple of systems and everyone in the betas went over to those systems and we had a massive battle everyone versus everyone and i think we topped out at like a hundred people and more or less killed the servers yeah that was yeah blew everything up uh, it was kind of something funny about uh, CCP. They they always talked about their technology because it seemed like that was it really appealed to the people but it was also showing that they were trying to make this bigger and bigger. They were trying to grow it. And it was trying to, they were trying to give confidence to early players. Well, the best thing that CCP did was to actually give control to the players. As in, the players makes the game, and that is what makes EVE. Yeah. I just okay. want yeah, to jump in on a of couple course. of here, especially after Molly's last comment, because I always kind of looked at EVE as being in sort of a, a kind of a, beta stage until sometime around 2008 or so um, because there was so much going on, especially in the first couple of years. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons that CCP ended up hiring a lot of players to come and work at the company and had a lot of contact with uh, certain players early on was that players were, I mean, in a way, they knew a lot more about what was going on mechanically with the game than the developers did. Uh, when you would you would see exploits, um, I mean, like a lot of people may have heard of the old Gankageddon, where you would stack eight heat sinks in the bottoms, and every single one of those heat sinks would apply damage. There were so many things like that that um, kind of shaped the early early days of how conflicts were won or lost and ccp was constantly trying to keep up with the next crazy shit that players figured out and try to patch it or fix it or you know or or make it better and um you know one of the things that molly mentioned about the last day of uh, beta there was also a transition in 2005 or 2006 whenever they changed their entire server architecture and they literally had like an armageddon day or something where the old servers were left on for like an extra night and 
everybody was able to just go absolutely berserk. There were carriers in Jita and everybody was just going bananas for about, you know, a whole night before they switched everybody to the other servers. So it was a very different time, a very different type of CCP as well. I do like that point you made that the players and, and the devs kind of seem in it together because the players knew just as much as the devs did. If you think about it, uh, at the 10th anniversary of CCP, they were up there, Hilmar was up there talking or somebody else was up there talking, saying like, you know, these these players were telling us about our game. So they hired him. And this is early on before they actually constructed the betas and alphas. Uh, so some of, the, some of the devs were coming right out of the community even to begin with. Uh, I think Hilmar came out that way. He was the one that knew a lot than they did, something like that. But what was both of you are leaders of significant organizations that historically have left their mark in a, in a major way, and you were both FCs. So what was combat like, and what was FCing like back then? Uh, whoever could coordinate best would win. That's just it. If you had out-of-game voice communications, and you had a tight team, and you went up versus one who didn't, you would win. So that was basically it. Uh, crazy setups and stuff no i mean a battleship was a battleship yeah you could stack heat sinks like <laughs> salim was saying and the gang again so only everyone knew what that was but we didn't have crazy tactics like you have today as in whatever you're taking the flavor of the month and we're all doing hacks we have armor hacks we have shield carriers we didn't have that we took everything there was one battleship of each and divided it up we didn't have the specialized tactics that you have today so that was majorly different yeah the thing that the, the biggest the absolute biggest thing is that what molly said at the very first was voice comms especially in the first two or three years you could it is amazing the number of people that were playing eve that didn't have a ts server or had or even ventrilo there's an old word and you know and ccp did attempt to kind of integrate their own thing called eve voice into the game to kind of compensate for that but it never caught on but you know being able to like you know change things up on the fly was a foreign concept to a lot of people that were playing the game back then so if you could have actual voice comms and you know fleet compositions didn't matter so much very early on because there were so few different types of you know if you had battleships you had heavy assault cruisers you were already so far ahead of what your enemies were using that it almost didn't matter uh, if you were flying a shield or an armor comp, or even if you had Lodgy or not, because you were so overpowering that it, it was almost a moot point. So it, it took a few years for those type of things to actually start mattering. One thing that actually did matter a lot, though, was actually your skill points. Uh, I remember when we were doing the uh, Northern Wars, whatever iteration it was, we had something called Jura Mollers. I don't know if you remember those. <laughs> <laughs> So basically a cruiser, which could not be hit by a battleship or a cruiser. And it only worked if you were at the top of your skill level, as in you started when Eve was released and you had managed to train up your skills to the maximum and the proper direction, then you could actually get into these ships and do what we call Jura Mollers. Nothing could hit it and you could kill anything. They're called Dura Mollers? Yep, Jura Mollers. Mm. There was also some craziness with um, putting siege missiles on kestrels. No, that was <laughs> that was actually that was actually just a, a normal thing back then. I mean, you used 
to be able the first two or three years of the game putting torpedoes on blackbirds or cruise missile launchers onto kestrels and things like that or even cruise missile launchers on rifters that was that was absolutely you know hilarious and then that kind of went into the whole the other big meta being able to dual prop mod and i don't mean a b and mwd i mean putting two mwds on like ruptures and ravens and then that's the old cavalry raven thing where you could literally just put like cruise missile launchers on ravens and you would fly by the target before the cruise missiles even hit it was hilarious what was the ship of choice apoc yeah <laughs> Apocalypse battleship. Okay. By the way, I found out that the first battleship to run off assembly lines were Dominic's, even though uh, the it apocalypse. Was the it was the cheapest. Probably why it got made first, I guess. Less minerals. Um, speaking of FCing, my FC of choice, Vince Draken says uh, back in more often, Sir Mole. <laughs> You're still around. You're an NC dot, right? Yeah, I'm an NC dot. Uh, I'm kind of in a grandpa role, though, so I'm not actively in battles or stuff like that, at least not the last couple of years. But yeah, I'm still around. Yeah. Actually, I think I flew in your last fleet because I was like, I, I, he did FC one time. I was in a fleet and I looked it up and it was a pause kill uh, in Iridia and I was on that fleet. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that one. But uh, that was my first and only flute uh, with you as FC, which is uh, really a treat. Uh, okay, let's talk about... Oh, go ahead. Do you want to say something? No, no, no. I'm good. I'm just laughing at what you're saying. <laughs> I, I did want to throw one other thing in here that I made in the, the, the stream, which is that the I think another reason that the Dominix was put out there first was because uh, it could use like 20 or 30 mining drones. So that might have had something to do with it as well. Oh, that's interesting. The race for minerals was just insane back then because you had to have the minerals to build it because this shit wasn't on the market you had to mine the shit yourself yeah so you were a fighter by night and a miner by day kind of thing right and the amount of mining traps that we have set up are numerous mm. you put in a bunch of people in a build and put one miner on the ship and the rest guns and then you fake a mining up and get people to attack you yeah. Um, so the other thing that I that was different back then that might have been different, of course, the, the whole pageantry of EVE Online seemed different. And Andrew talks about this when he does his uh, speeches really well, uh, was just the way that it, it, was, it was presented. But um, before we talk about that, the metagame, Evolution, your corporation, seemed to not only be more skilled and more organized, but you seem to kind of pioneer subterfuge as well. Was that a big part of your situation or or did that develop later? It wasn't really. I mean, yeah, we had a good PR section of the corporation. We had people who were actually good at exploiting whatever happened and turn it into our advantage. But we did not really plan the stuff beforehand until way, way, way later. I said, okay, we want this to happen and we're going to do this to make this happen. But in the beginning, no, we didn't really have that much of a subterfuge. It was more, okay, this happened. How can we exploit that? Uh, Andrew, do you want to talk about the pageantry of Eve and how uh, expressive the forums were and stuff? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's an entirely different world that people who started playing Eve, if you started playing Eve like as much as like eight years ago, you still wouldn't recognize the way that, that Eve looked in, in like 2003, 2004, and even 05, 06. Um, because 
the tradition in in the same way that um you know in modern eve you're supposed to be kind of like very blue collar very like jokey and not take things too seriously in most cases uh, is generally the way that people like to carry themselves um uh, in this era of eve if you weren't role playing you were just nobody you know like if if you weren't someone who could command attention on the forums then then no one was really paying attention to you and i really find that extremely fascinating because part of it clearly to me has to do with the like the infrastructure of the internet, you know, it, that's how you talked to people at the time was on the forums. So if you're going to talk to people on the forums, it better be entertaining. And if you're just going to be sort of like aloof, no one's going to bother reading all of your posts every single time. But if you're going to be entertaining, if you're going to be, you know, the space dictator or the space propagandist, even if you hate that person, you're still going to read what they have to say. And so a lot of the most prominent personalities at the time, um, projected their character on, onto the diplomatic relations of everything that was going on. And that set sort of a culture um, where if you wanted to speak publicly, it was sort of expected that you do so. And it kind of created a, a more literal space opera than, than we have today in modern Eve, um, where we still have that storyline developing because it started in, in it's rooted in, in that original storyline. But back then it wasn't just like a space opera it actually like basically was because the people in it were pretending that it was they were making it real and then having the actual battles only the actual battles were politically motivated like it it sort of they sort of will it into reality in a very weird and and unique way and that's one of my favorite things about um the era of eve that that empires of eve covers is that everybody's just having so much fun with it like it, yeah. it's it, it's infectious just how much fun everyone's having uh with just the day-to-day -day of what's going on yeah i think sir mola is um <clears throat> his uh, signature was the clock right they always seem to be a tick tock <laughs> the pendulum the pendulum <laughs> the pendulum campaign so that was yeah way back <laughs> yeah wow. the pendulum was that a grandfather clock uh pendulum kind of thing yeah that's where all the myths started about it was all planned at the barbecue because that one was actually planned at the barbecue <laughs> so that one was planned at the barbecue so you, you planned world domination uh at a barbecue that you would have <laughs> every year uh, legend or true it's totally true because the first barbecue we had, there was like seven people. And that was just people coming from all over the world over to Denmark, having fun. Uh, the second one and the third one, I think at the third one, we started actually doing a strategy session where we actually had a whiteboard and everything and maps and just did strategy for a couple of hours asking, what can we do? What should we do? Why should we do it? And then just plan out the events. And the first thing we did plan on the barbecue was the pendulum wars. Uh, well, see, it may be true, but it is also legendary. The barbecues are legendary at this point. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, so this is before, this is before meetups and stuff. Yeah, this is before meetups. I mean, the barbecue started way before CCP did any kind of meetups. Uh, I think they started, was it 2008 or nine? I'm not sure when they started. But the first one we had was like, as I told you, eight people or seven people. The second we had was like 50 people. And then it just spiraled from there. The most we had was about 250 people 
coming over, staying for a week in tents, and we rented a camp, etc., and just had a blast. In those days, imagine telling your mom or dad that you're you're going, you're flying to Denmark to meet a bunch of people you know over the internet, and you've never met them in person. Can you? They that was a different era. Your parents would have looked at you like you were, you know, playing Russian roulette or something. Yeah, absolutely. There was like. Um... That, that's that's something that I found really interesting about about the barbecue and and is because that was like you said it was a completely different era and nobody did stuff like that back then like the things that you did online regardless of what it was like even if it was playing video games you were supposed to basically like culturally you're supposed to be embarrassed about it right like you're supposed to pretend that you didn't have an online life because anything that you did on the internet was nerdy and and it took it took a lot of these people to plan in-person events if people hadn't done that that culture might not have actually like broken down and nowadays like everybody gets it like if you go and meet all your internet friends it's, it's awesome and you should definitely go do that um but people didn't know at the time hmm. do you still have those barbecues yes i do i think we're coming up on 15 years soon oh wow um and how big are they these days is it just your old friends these days they're smaller uh, i'm not inviting all of eve <laughs> i'm just inviting uh, parts of evolution and the evolution guys and old friends so they're coming over to my house and we're staying at my house and it's usually a weekend only and it's coming up next weekend oh wow so next weekend uh great it's an it's a great tradition um motivations like both of you guys are leaders what's it like to get people to try to do stuff uh especially like in this in this game what was what were some of the things that people were motivated by you can get people to do anything whatsoever i mean but in evolution we got the most people when we called for a mining op <laughs> so mining was a big draw well we made it fun we had fun on our voice comms we entertained ourselves we had more or less what you have now uh music broadcasts and stuff like that and the girls in evolution would come and play around with the guys in evolution and just having a blast so yeah that was an event as a mining up okay let's go everyone screw the mining we're gonna have fun yeah, it sounds was... like people just wanted to hang out like yeah that was basically it this was a i mean that was being able to get a group of people online and keep them entertained for two or three hours at a time was definitely one of the bigger skills as a quote-unquote FC, whether you were seeing a minor, a mining op or whether you were going off on like, you know, a drunken rampage, you know, out in the cosmos. The, um, it was not people. I find that I find that today in Eve, people often expect to just kind of log in, and the content will be there waiting on them, and all they have to do is dock and go. And when you only had, you know, like six thousand people online a night, or you know, you had to actually go looking for it. So in between, you know, sitting on a gate or cleaning out a belt, you had to be able to actually keep people uh, entertained. So it helped if everybody was kind of familiar with each other because they knew each other from meeting or that they spent a lot of time just hanging out on comms, talking to each other. So it's um, it wasn't quite as, I'd say, militaristic as it is in some aspects today. It was a lot more social in the early days. It was both things, I would say, though, because you had two different modes back then. You had the bullshit mode when everyone was having, having fun, and then you would switch in an instant because, okay, now we need to do shit. 
Well, it actually sounds like a bigger, uh, sorry, a smaller deal as well. You have 20, 40 guys that kind of all know each other. Whereas now they, you know, the leaders of alliances, there are a lot of people in, in their group that they don't even know. So I wonder if it's a bit different now where you have to kind of or a bunch of people that you're not actually friends with. It's kind of the same thing. It's just a different scale. I mean, any FC will tell you that FCing for a longer period of time is like herding cats. You've got to keep everyone in control. You've got to keep them entertained and you've got to get them to stay. If you as an FC cannot do that, you're going to fail as an FC. Right. So the broader perspective now, the game, there were different philosophies at work. Andrew, maybe you can talk about this and you guys can jump in. Sure. What was going on with philosophies about space? Like, uh, it seemed that uh, I ran into a story where somebody was flying through NullSec and he was stopped by someone who said, turn back, you can't go this way. And I just thought that was utterly ridiculous in today's world. But back then, <laughs> yeah. it was different, right? What were the different philosophies at work there? Yeah, and I mean, it's always a little bit wishy-washy when you talk about philosophies because philosophies are sort of like inherently ephemeral. Like there's not a whole a lot of historical context uh, or like data points that you can back up a lot of this stuff. But when, when you talk to people back then, particularly like when I talked to Jay Constantine, uh, they're convinced that like the, the epic struggle the primordial struggle at the time in Eve, and honestly, it's like it's kind of been the struggle with Eve for you know with Nelsec forever. Has been it can be essentially boiled down to like the struggle between NRDS and yeah, basically. So not red, uh, don't shoot. Uh, yeah, yeah, and if not blue or something, shoot. Uh, somebody correct it's, me on that. So not blue, shoot it. Yeah, no, yeah, not blue, shoot it. So basically, it was um, it was a conflict between the people who were in sort of instinctively going out in, into NullSec, conquering a, a group of star systems, and then militarily blocking off those star systems, uh, which was really hard to do back then because there was no sovereignty in 2003. Uh, that didn't come in until I think like mid-2004 or something like that. Um, and so you would just go in, you'd be the toughest guys around, and you'd take over a star system, a group of star systems, and it would be yours. Um, some other people at the time, a lot of other people at the time, actually, because you had both Jade Constantine and the Venal Alliance, but you also had the Coalition of Free Stars in the southeast, southwest at the time, uh, down in, in uh, Aquarius and period basis. And there was basically there was basically this struggle between democracies who wanted to like let people into their territory and and uh, and participate in what they were doing and and have open borders and then there's people who didn't want to have open borders and those were sort of the the central philosophical arguments that were going on at the time because there were some people who who didn't necessarily believe that Eve was destined to become this sort of like militaristic hellscape out in Nelsec. Like there was some people who thought that it could be um, just like a place of like peace and trading and building. And you see this idea kind of crop up a few different times, like later on in like 2006, Ascendant Frontier kind of like has a similar thing going on where they're more focused on on building than they are destroying and i think that's kind of kind of the central dynamic in nelsec right it's builders versus shooters uh at least in the early few years it just seems like the like we live in a certain society in eve online that is taken for if you go to nelsec you kill everything unless it's mm -hmm. blue you just do uh except in certain areas where people try to preserve let somebody pass if you want to there's also now a whole philosophy 
uh, signal cartel of don't shoot first. Um, you know, we're just explorers. Don't don't attack anybody. But if you're attacked, then fight back. And it seemed like that was more back then. Like there wasn't a given that you would just kill everybody that you saw in Nelsec space. There was there was a thing oh, of definitely right, like exploring, letting people letting people pass through and. Yeah, I mean, killing somebody in early Eve was like kind of a risk. It seemed like, and, and Molly can speak more to this than I can, but to me it seemed like it was kind of a risk because there really weren't that many people around. And so if you did something wrong, people were going to hear about it. And if you were labeled a pirate back then, this was like this really big deal. Like it, it was like some like you would really try to deny that. If someone labeled you a pirate, you'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's like oh, being called guy. racist or something. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, let's talk this through. Let's not just hurl expletives around here. You know? yeah. um, and so like you want to be careful with that because it, it was, you know, I guess it would kind of be roughly analogous to being like a, like a scam artist nowadays. People, once you're out of it as a scam artist, once you've soiled your reputation, nobody trusts you anymore. Um, you weren't like persona non grata as a, as, a, as a pirate, although you were in some Nelsec territories. Um, but yeah. Your reputation was forfeited. Being a pirate was a very bad thing. Yes, and yeah, you you got a couple of people around that were pirates, and the most infamous ones at that time is what became Mu, and they, they were pirates. They were self declared pirates, and they were bad, naughty people, and they would look at you and you would blow up. That was uh, Masters of Ownage. Yeah, I was. I, it Molly beat me to the punch because there were. There were a few groups like Mu, like Space Invaders, a couple others that they reveled in that reputation. And the and the outsize effect that that sort of thing had on people dealing with you was just was just phenomenal. Um, Andrew touched on, you know, the what I guess could be for uh, called the forum wars of the time. If you were if you were well spoken and presented yourself well or if you made a couple of really cool videos, because there weren't a lot of the videos going around. If you made a couple of cool videos of your pirate group blowing the shit out of everybody, then you know, it would magnify so much. And um, that's kind of you know, it's it goes back to, you know, when you guys were talking about the barbecue earlier, the when the whole pendulum thing got announced and, you know, Band of Brothers essentially stated that their, you know, their stated goal was to take over the entire map. There were so many people that were like, oh, that's crazy, that's crazy. But when you think about it, what's the point of playing a game like this if that isn't your ultimate goal in a way, mm -hmm. you know, is to win everything. And But just the fact that, like, there were people that were playing this game that were willing to even make those statements unapologetically would go very far into you know how people would perceive or react to you and it's a lot of fun I, I get a sense that the early days were nobody knew how to act because eve wasn't evolved it wasn't created and you know there wasn't this history that was there so people were taking their influences from the world they had statesmen they had spokesmen they had military generals and they were kind of role-playing real life in this virtual world um, but again, if you put it in context of what other games were doing at the time, if you played Star Wars Galaxy, for instance, you didn't just shoot everybody. But uh, I thought that was very interesting in, in how it's changed considerably, especially in Null. Um, let's, let's start talking about some major events you were a part of, um, starting off with um, the first major war in EVE. Uh, Andrew, do you want to talk about this? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's... it's... 
I hesitate to call it the first major right. war. Stain versus Curse is like what people consider to be the first, I think, uh, major war. But I don't really know very much about that for very complex reasons. Um, but you're talking about the Venal Alliance up in the north? Right. That led to the war against, yeah, Phoenix Alliance. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, like the, the first war that I feel like... Um, was the stone dropping in the pond and we're still kind of watching the ripple effects was was like in 2003 where there's this organization called the venal alliance up in the north and there's like two factions within the venal alliance and there's the the, like the free space loving jade constantine and jericho fraction and then there's the uh like the staunch libertarian wing taggart transdimensional and basically what happens is evolution uh, hates Taggart Transdimensional, goes to invade the Venal Alliance and goes through really elaborate means to kind of like try to drive a wedge between the Alliance to split those two factions apart. And that sort of the fallout from that, because it's successful uh, and it leads to this sort of very brutal civil war up in the north, for the, for, especially for the early years, like this is some one of the most brutal things that's happening in EVE Online at the time. Um, ends up sparking a lot of different things that come after that and ends up creating the beginning conditions for the Great Northern War, which came after that. And then uh, in the Great Northern War, Band of Brothers is formed for the first time. And then the next like four years of history all revolve around Band of Brothers. And so it's, it's really fascinating to look at this like early event uh where this early civil war and see like the, there's a footprint here and if you follow that footprint it leads you to some really really interesting places and you can continue following it all the way up to to modern day and that's like one of the things that, that really drives me about eve yeah um can i ask you sir molly why did you hate tag art <laughs> <laughs> okay so this came from the beta games actually so before eve was released Taggart was this huge, humongous corporation in the betas that uh, were trying to do whatever they felt like. And we were the evil little corporation that came in and we were going to show them that, no, you cannot do what you want to do. So it just became natural that we became enemies and it just spiraled from there, really. I mean, the philosophies of Taggart and how they were playing it didn't sit well with us and the way we were playing. So we were just natural enemies and it came from the betas. Now, did you always have the communist kind of model in mind? Because evolution is like a communist, uh, by, by the communist, I mean communal, where everything belongs to the uh, model. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, we played the betas. The betas uh, reset everything like, 10 or 20 times you play for three months and then we're going to start from scratch again then you play for three months and you're going to start from scratch again after doing that a couple of times we figured out okay what is the best way to actually advance and make progress and since we were such a tight group in the beginning we were like 20 30 people at the most everyone knew each other everyone trusted each other so every single person within evolution was a director in the corporation so that meant we took no invites. We didn't take any people into the corporation unless we knew them very, very well. So sharing everything and working towards everyone's goal instead of one person's goal, that was just natural. You practice that to this day or have things changed? No, we practice that to this day. We, evolution is still a, what you call a communistic core passing. 
the corp owns everything and the pilot owes nothing. So we give the pilot whatever they need and the pilot gives back whatever they can to the corporation. Oh, whatever they can. Yeah. It's not, okay, you got to give me 50 billions this month because that's your share. No, you're going to give whatever you can afford with your playing time. If you have five hours to play, okay, have fun, play five hours. If you're playing 50 hours and making a ton of stuff on the side, okay, contribute to evolution. We're not, I'm not sure how to put it, but we're not anal about it. So it's not, if someone goes out and makes a hundred mil on the side because they wanted to buy themselves shiny shoes, we're not going to get pissed about that. But overall, yes, we are in a communist corporation. And so that was maybe in contrast to Taggart, which was uh, Ayn Rand based or more libertarian. Yeah, that they were they were totally capitalistic, as in they were playing for their own gains while we were playing for the group's gains. Okay, so you went and, uh, and attacked them in... Uh... I think Jade Constantine was involved. This is all in the book if you want to read it. It's done very well uh, by Andrea. I recommend it. And then that turned into, eventually evolved into Phoenix a lot. Did you have a motivation for fighting Phoenix? Uh, the, motivation, the motivation for fighting was fighting to getting fights. I mean, that was it. Simple as that, right? But they were also a big, a big target, I guess. Yeah, so... From the betas, when we started, we were always viewed as a small elite corporation. And we wanted to take that image and show them, hey, give us your biggest, baddest guy, whatever you have, throw it at us and we're going to crunch it. So it was a challenge. We were just, I mean, we were going for, I don't know, what do you want to call it? The bully or whatever, the big bad guy on the corner. Mm -hmm. So when you did attack them, there was this huge fight. Lasted a even other alliances from down south were getting involved. It ends up in a tie, or was it armistice agreement, where you basically both decide, yeah, we'll stop fighting. What happened there? Why did it? Why didn't anybody like really win by taking over territory or crushing their enemy that time? At that time, you couldn't take territory. You couldn't crush people. Uh, you could control the space while you are awake and flying in space. When you have docked and gone to bed, you can no longer control space. It wasn't possible to win without actually getting so much pressure on your enemy so that your enemy implodes. That was the only way to win. There was no way to control anything else. Nowadays, you have a lot of mechanics to be able to actually control space and say, hey, this is our space. Look here, we've got a mark on the map that says this is our space. That didn't exist back then. You couldn't. You couldn't kill a station. You couldn't, I mean, POSs didn't really exist. Uh, you could blow up their ships. The first couple of years, the way to hide a ship in space was to park it at a deep safe. That's what you did. You went to a deep safe spot, parked your ship, ejected, so you would have a, space in sh uh, a ship in space, and then you go dark. So you would actually have parking depots out in deep space with 20 ships sitting without pilots. <laughs> Can you imagine stumbling upon this? Were there, <laughs> were there any probe mechanics that could find them? Uh, in the beginning, no. There was more or less just manual warping in a direction where you could do a directional scan towards where they were. We had a couple of people who were actually doing that. I said, okay, we'll figure out what direction they are. 
and we're going to warp in that direction, turn off our warp and see if we land close. And then we're going to slingshot off each other and keep trying to go to where their safe spot is with their ships manually, without any probes whatsoever. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. When that war wraps up, were there any like lessons that you took away from that? Did it put you in a different position or different mindset? Well, the the wars kind of ended up there when they started introducing player on stations and outposts. And you can actually take stations and we fought over the same station like twenty times. Every time a downtime or less. Okay, let's take it, let's lose it, let's take it, let's lose it. That got old after a while. So eventually we kind of just settled down and said, Okay, what are we gonna do now? And that's kind of when we decided, okay, we're done with the north now, let's go down south. Quick question, real quick. Yeah. Well, Mola, you mentioned that uh, there's there was this focus in in early Eve uh, not on militarily dominating people because it was impossible, but trying to like kind of crack them internally and sort of break the group, and that became kind of a time honored tradition in Eve. Like if if you're in a war in modern Eve and you're not trying to do that, at least like you're not using all the tools in your in your toolkit. Do you think that maybe Eve might have progressed in a different direction had it not been kind of mandatory to try to do that in the early wars? It became a very big part of what you had to do to be able to break someone. You had to get someone on the inside. You had to try and break it from the inside. I mean, if the mechanics would have been there for actually being able to create a victory and say, yes, we won, then that part wouldn't have been that big piece of EVA as it is today, I would say. Hmm. Okay, so staying in Cursed, I want to turn your attention to the South. Stan and Curse were in some kind of a eternal war for like two years where they're fighting back and forth. Uh, Celine, do you, were you a part of that conflict or did you come in a little later? I was there kind of when it really initially kicked off. My, uh, I had actually moved my little corporation out to Curse and we actually formed a small little coalition of folks that went to war against Curse Alliance what was beginning to be Curse Alliance, and they were Curse Alliance simply because they lived in Curse. And we came out on the the bad end of that against uh, corporations like Vengeance of the Fallen and a few other ones. And so we started talking to and moved over to Stain and joined the Stain Alliance. And, you know, Curse and Stain were right next to each other. And if you look at the map even today, there's this, you know, one long couple of jumps that connects the two regions. And basically, they went to war with each other simply because there it was something to do. Uh, there was none of the, I don't ever recall there being any of the high-minded ideology. It was just simply that um, Curse were the bad guys and Stain were the good guys. And that is correct, by the way. I just want to make that clear. And um, they <laughs> I just... I checked the resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... You know, and it just went back and forth, back and forth for, yeah, a better part of a year and a half. And it started basically the same way that Molly was describing what was going on in the north. You just pounded and pounded and pounded. And um, I mean, and the other thing, one other thing, there were no kill mails initially in Eve. Uh, so for the first year or more, there was no way to even verify who was actually winning or losing a conflict. There were no kill mails. There were no kill boards. Um 
there was uh, constant arguing about, you know, who was winning or losing a conflict on the forums. And so you would sometimes have to judge uh, who was winning a conflict basically by the command of the, whoever had the greatest command of the English language on the forums. And so, you know, up until a certain point, there was no way to even just, you know, to, to figure out what was going on in some of these conflicts. And then eventually kill mills did come in conquerable stations came in and then you had a bit more of you know bragging rights or way to you know kind of show what the results of you know your weekend of not sleeping was about but um it just in i i kind of stepped out of all of that sometime around mid 2000 late 2004 um because it just it just the back and forth with no real um pointable goals you know and something you say oh look what we did you know it kind of got to wearing on me and then i kind of went off to do my own thing and that that's a whole other story but it was um it was it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun it seems like you were fighting for the excitement of the fight uh, and sometimes with kill mails it's uh, fighting collection of treasure you know look at how many kills i have I, I go on and on about this but it seems like kill mails and the apis and all the stuff that uh, gives you statistics is a real driving force for some people but it creates really odd behavior with people just shooting one shot into five different ships so they get credit for or not flying logistics because you don't get counted when you do that. No doubt. That's that's yeah. it's definitely changed like I, I would say the meta of why certain people fly. But um back then it was just as I said, you you if you found a group of people um, because as, as I said earlier, sometimes there were nights where, you know, you didn't even have 10,000 people online. It took a while for Eve to really take off, you know, after the first two or three years. So if you found a group that you could get steady content from, then you kind of tended to stay in that area. So that way you could, you know, kind of be guaranteed of having a reason to log in and fight if that was your primary goal. If all you want to do is, you know, mine away, mine away, you know, you could do that. And, you know, maybe no one would bother you, but if your primary goal was to fight someone, you either had to go looking for a war or go to a place where you knew there was a war going on. And the, the Stain Alliance, and the Curse Alliance thing was probably one of the more consistent conflicts uh, in the early years of EVE. If you wanted to fight, you could go join either side and know that you were probably going to be able to shoot somebody at some point. Is it red versus blue of its time, I guess? Pretty much, yeah. So who came out of Stain Alliance? What groups that grew came from that area? I would say that probably historically uh, the most well-known group that got to be pretty big would be, um, I believe there was, a, there was a Tyrell Corporation, and I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure Celestial Horizon came out of Stain Alliance, and they were the core of, um, uh, you know, that was Cyvok and Zedek. Yeah. Alliance and, and then that eventually became Ascended Frontier. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll talk about them in a minute. Also, you had Red Alliance and the kind of the Russian players. Yeah, they started. were the bad guys. They were in Curse. Around <laughs> They're the bad guys. Well, actually, they weren't even in Curse. They were just kind of their own thing. They would just show up sometimes and be mean to everybody and go back to their little holes. Out of that group, you had big names like Mac Tech, I guess UX Dad, Evil Thug, started AAA. Oh like, yeah, my buddy. All, all those guys were <laughs> were there. What, what does that name mean to you, Sir Mo? No, it's just those old names. It's like Mac Tep's been around forever. I'm not sure if he's still actually around. He is. He just flew in the Alliance tournament, actually. Oh god. Oh, god. 
And it's like evil thug. He's such a great guy. <laughs> he is such a great guy. And those old school guys and everything that came with him, like evil thug, this stern Russian that's never going to give up no matter what. He's going to be in your face. I think Celine can testify to that. Oh, yeah. You, you don't have these guys anymore. They they don't exist. It's yeah, it's good old profiles. I'm sorry, but it was way better before all before Eve evolved above a certain level. So the personas that you had back then, you're never going to get those back. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting because you also had you had Foil and uh, Zertam uh, both on the Curse Alliance yeah. side, who are t- t- some of the only names that you can still here in from 2003 and uh, the the sort of apocryphal story about them they just screamed at each other like twice a week in council meetings like there was just this civil war happening like inside of the alliance but they refused to break apart so they just scream at each other trying to dominate one another uh in 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 these council meetings and then on staying alliance side you had trigger who is a huge character a huge role player who I believe someone told me once, like always talk to people sort of like a drill sergeant. And so he'd be like coming to it like a chat channel. I'd be like, what's going on maggots? How's everybody doing today maggots? <laughs> that is 100% correct. Until you get to know Trigger because Trigger when he's off role is a totally different person. That sure. evolution worked a lot with mass back then when we were involved within the CA and SA wars. And Mass was the driving force behind the state and violence, and Trigger was the driving force of the whole alliance. And there's examples of where somebody would say, uh, hey, there's uh, battleships on the other side of that gate. The Russian guy would say, yeah, I count 20. Ready to go? <laughs> no question. Let's go. There's only two of us. Doesn't matter. Let's go. I talked to Sort Dragon at one point, and he said that was kind of what happened in BTAC-R, the biggest fight where these titans all collided and killed 75, 80 titans or more. And um, it was the Russians that were like, what are we waiting for? Let's get in there. That's kind of what started the the actual fight. But I don't know. Um, by the way, I, I did hear Zertram uh, has passed away. I think that was Sorry. your attack, actually. Okay, so... That was cursed, cursed and stained. Out of all there came uh, uh, Arcane Technologies, which was Atuk. Can you guys tell us a little bit about that corporation? That Atuk, Atuk came out of. If you say stained lines, I'm going to take your word for it. No, no, no. It was cursed. Well, both because okay. they switched yeah, sides. Yeah. So Atuk is. That's what DICE started as. They started as took. I'm pretty sure, and moved from there. And they went from being no one to a powerhouse very fast. They had a bunch of big bad boys, and they were doing great. They had great leadership. And yeah, they just grew in a matter of months from nothing to someone big and shiny and powerful. Right. They considered themselves princes of the universe, they said. I talked with a few of them yesterday and recorded it, and I'll put it out as supplemental material to this. Atuk did become Destructive Influence, uh, which is my corporation in NC. But uh, how did Destructive Influence get involved, Bob? Uh, They became involved... Crap. If I could remember. I think it was from a small corporation that actually flew up along in the north. If I could remember the name started with a small corporation that 
merged into A2, I think. And then A2 came back and went away and came back and went away. And yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's I, yeah, those are, those are hard details to remember 10 years, 12 years later. But, but eventually DICE, I imagine, was hanging around with for a while because they actually became part of the Band of Brothers, right? Yeah, they did. So we started with Ray Koku and Black Light Corporation, which was, uh, damn it. Oh, I'm getting old. Black, uh, was it Black, Black Nova? Black, Black Nova. Yeah. And Evolution, and that was it. And then Moo joined, but not properly in the Alliance for a short while. And then we had another small corporation that was inside as well for a short while. And then took or DICE came on later on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I heard that uh, evolution plus Moo equaled uh, Moovolution, which was a thing. Yeah. Yeah, that was a thing. That was before the alliance as such was started. And we had an informal alliance, as in Ray Coco, uh, Black Nova, and Evolution. And then we threw Moo into the mix, and everyone went, Yikes, yeah, it's good. <laughs> right. So you had uh, some of the most cutting edge pirates along with evolution, which was a juggernaut uh, at the time. Andrew, do you want to kind of set up what the Pendulum Wars were and maybe how they relate to the ASCN? Sure, yeah. Uh, the, the Pendulum Wars, as, as they've been described to me by Molly, were basically about a, a scheme to create content for, for Band of Brothers and Evolution down in Dell, uh, which was their headquarters at the time in like, this is like 2005. And... Uh, I'm telling Molly's story for him, but it basically the idea was to go up into the north, piss a bunch of people off, like kick the hornet's nest and then retreat back down to Delve. And then what they would come attack you in Delve and you wouldn't have to fly all the way up to the north to get them to come attack you. You could get them to sort of like, you could bait them into coming into your home territory and you'd have all this content. You wouldn't have to go anywhere. Um, and so the idea was... Uh, Molly, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea was to be kind of like a pendulum and it would go up into the north and they would hit somebody and then they would come back down and then they would go into uh, the east and hit a center frontier and then they would come back. And uh, and then that turned, that's kind of spiraled out of control into the broader Ascended Frontier War where it became sort of a full-on all-out conflict between Band of Brothers and Ascended Frontier. How'd I do? <laughs> How did that start with uh, Ascendant Frontier? Uh, well, so that conflict gets started because uh, Ascendant Frontier builds the first Titan in EVE Online's history. And uh, good old Steve, Steve the Titan. And uh, Sounds like Bruce the Shark, right, from Jaws. <laughs> yeah, so, so Steve the Titan uh, gets built after, like, months and months of preparation and scheming and trying to keep things secret and it finally is birthed and everybody wants to destroy the thing and and immediately and uh i believe that was like one of the main impetuses that that set off uh the campaign against the center frontier was the desire to kill steve the titan uh molly can you still hear us yeah how did i do so for the ASCN wars, you guys are breaking up a bit. Uh, the drive for us wasn't really to kill Steve. That kind of came as a bonus, but that wasn't a drive. The, the Pendulum Wars was all about, as Andrew said, yeah, we're going to get fights to our doorstep. So first, we're going to go up north. We're going to kick the biggest, baddest guy up there, whoever it is, in the butt, as far as we can, and then we're going to go home. And then we're going to go to the east, 
and we're going to go kick the biggest, baddest guy on that side in the butt as hard as we can, and then we're going to go home. But what happened is when we went over to ASEAN and started kicking them, they started folding, and we were not counting on that whatsoever. Oh, so your intent wasn't to, to crush them or break them. No, that was not the intent. But as we came up there and started kicking them, they started folding and we could see that they were breaking. So it just spiraled from there. And eventually we got to Steve as well and got rid of him. So yeah, hey, win-win. That's right. You yeah. killed the Titan. The first Titan built was also the first Titan to die? It was. The thing about that is, though, is that it wasn't just... It wasn't just the fact that Band of Brothers was in there kicking them. It was also, there was a lot of, as I alluded to earlier, there was a lot of like forum war stuff going on. And the forum war stuff was, as usual, very, very, you know, Molly was being Molly. And it was very much, you know, we're, we're here to, you know, like take your women and kill your babies. And when you had something like that going, it has, you know, it has an effect on the people that you're fighting. So even though ASCN might have been able to stand or not fall apart, you know, they were probably pretty much convinced that, you know, the end was nigh, and that had a cascading effect. And so that was, I don't know. It, he, you know, Molly says he was surprised that they folded, but maybe he shouldn't have been. <laughs> well, they had tons and tons and tons of resources. They had tons and tons of people. By any measuring standard, we should not have been able to break them because we had, what, a thousand people at the most, and they had, what, 7,000? Uh, that math doesn't ring true in any way. And it just started happening, and we just kept on going. And yeah, okay, let's do it. And you got a Titan kill the first out of it, and which kind of ended the career of Cyborg, uh, who was their, their leader. I think that I think that Cyvok quitting was probably the, the the straw that broke him. I know that he tried turning it over to a couple of guys to keep the fight going, but Cyvok was I mean he was ASCN, and when he lost that Titan and he pulled the you know and he just said I'm done, I think that that was that was probably the big thing. ASCN as an entity, yeah, definitely could have kept the good fight going, but uh, they just you know without Cyvok to hold them together, it just didn't work. Yeah, it's an interesting quality of a lot of different organizations that you come across in, in the history where once in a while you'll find these groups where they're entirely dependent on their main leader. And if that main leader quits, it's just done. There's nobody else who's even capable of keeping the whole thing together. Uh, I haven't like personally researched this, but I think that was sort of the case with the Atlas Alliance as well, where Bobby Atlas at the, at the head of this corporation stops, you know, taking quite such an active role in what's going on. And it, it all kinds of kind of falls apart in the ASCN is very much the same story where Cyvok leaves and then Cyvok essentially rage quits uh, after uh, rage quits all of Eve after Steve the Titan is destroyed. And then there's just nobody guiding the, the it's, it's, it's cutting the head off of the organism, right? Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Carneros. Yeah. So not long after Steve the Titan came along Darwin's contraption. And I imagine it was hard to know exactly in those days, but was that was that the second Titan built, or was that just the second famous Titan? That was the second Titan. Uh, so Steve was built, I think it was two weeks before ours popped out of the oven. And yeah, that was kind of 
miscalculation. We did not know that they were working on the first one and how far along they were. So we were counting on having the first one. But yeah, as it turns out, we didn't. We got the second one. And and I'm going to assume that uh, the your famous Titan pilot Shrike was flying Darwin's contraption. Yes, I was. And and in those days, trust worked differently in Eve than it does today. And you guys are are famous with your uh, your tight knit group and your. Uh, and I'm I'm wondering how long did you have Darwin's contraption? Before you let another pilot sit in him, never. <laughs> so holy cow! Now, now way back then, uh, you actually had people sharing accounts a lot because they had a specific account set up for a very specific job. So sharing accounts was a thing back then. I don't think it is so much today. It could be, but. I got slapped on my fingers for doing that with a battleship pilot. So in the end, I could not share my account, even if I wanted to, and even if I trusted someone, because everyone was looking at me. And I was getting petitioned like every other day, as in, hey, this guy is account sharing. Please ban him. So yeah, there was only ever me flying strike and no one else ever. Celine, you also had a Titan. Uh, what was its name? Uh, Armageddon Dawn. All right, these are two of the first Titans in the game, right? You guys are two of the first Titan pilots. No, I think that um, I believe Molly's was the second. I believe mine was the sixth or the seventh, and I was, I believe, the second Ragnarok. Right. Well, you're the, you're in the top ten, which after if you look around now, that's good. <laughs> you you were flying them when they were expensive and dangerous and um, a coveted target as well. So the risk factor was huge. And you didn't have a bunch of other supers that were going to be able to, you know, give you cap or defend you, that kind of stuff. That's, your, your fit was really unique, right? Yeah. When, um, when, we got, when we got to the point where we could throw, throw a Titan together, we specifically went for a very different type of uh, mechanic instead of you know molly and thug and these other guys had gone with avatars and Erebuses, which they were like putting you know like double and triple reps on and super tanking and part of the mystique of flying a you know they used to call super carriers motherships you know but part of the part of the mystique of flying one of these ships was that people they were so new and so unfamiliar that people didn't really understand what their full capabilities were or were not so uh, what we decided to do was we went in an entirely different direction. We made a Titan, we made a Mimitar Titan that was all, it had uh, polys in the rigs, uh, inertial stabs in the lows, and the entire purpose of a Titan, as far as we were concerned, had nothing to do with staying on a field and doing anything because it had no damage bonuses to the guns or anything. The most important thing a Titan could do, aside from like you know using a jump portal, was the Doomsday device, the area of effect Doomsday device that could do sixty or seventy thousand points of damage to everything within two hundred and fifty kilometers. And so, get it on grid, get it off grid as quickly as possible. So we made a Titan that could warp in, hit the button, and warp off in less than nine seconds. Wow. Well, and there were other there were other variations of this as well. Um, we got the idea off of watching actually 
a North, one of the old Northern Coalition uh, Leviathans. Uh, there was a guy named Overon, I believe was his name, in the old, old Northern Coalition uh, uh, Coalition of Alliances up in the north. He made a Leviathan that was nothing but like Capri Charge. And he could jump in, hit his DD, and jump out within 12 seconds. So there was no, there was no mechanic that stopped you, that stopped the ship once you hit the DD. There was no limitations whatsoever. You couldn't be caught by bubbles, nothing. So, you know, these were two examples of fairly ridiculous and retarded fits that, you know, we were using back in the day before CCP caught up with the players again. So you didn't do a lot of um, changing your fit up all the time, experimenting, because you you had something that you you theory crafted through and it was working for you. Is that right? So the, the role for Celine was totally different from my role. Because Celine, they had a job as mercenaries to actually execute whatever. So Celine's role was to go in and do as much damage as possible, whereas my role was more deterrent. I'm going to go and sit on the battlefield, blow out a doomsday, and look scary. And I'm going to be staying on the battlefield until it's time to leave and we have won the battle. And did did you change Darwin's contraptions fit a lot in order and experiment a lot as you were going and learning how to use it? Nope. My role has never been the ship tinker. I couldn't set up a Titan if I wanted to do today. I think I think what Molly's touching on there is something that's kind of, I mean, some some fleet commanders, some alliance leaders, they're they're into they sit in the theory crafting channel with all of their other math nerds and they go through you know oh my god we need an eight percent chart you know no no there's quite a few of us that okay I've got this thing what do I do with it okay good I'll do that and. That's, uh, you know, that was kind of what happened with me as well. Um, we had this idea that we wanted to do something different. And we had a, you know, we had a group of people that, you know, well, actually, it was three guys that came up with this, you know, this radical idea and said, okay, this is how you're going to fit it. And this is how you're going to fly it. And, you know, it actually worked. Holy shit. You know, <laughs> so that's just what we kept on doing. I want to talk about Shrike a little bit, because Shrike is um, obviously Sir Molly's combat alt, and I guess Sir Molly was the one making speeches on the first, but Shrike is really where... But you were also, this is amazing, the champion for House Sarum in the first succession trials, right? Yeah, that's correct. How, how did that come about? So that was actually a team effort. So CCP created the first tournament for before all the crazy stuff with the Alliance tournament. And we were part of signing up for it and wasn't that much people and even back in that day. And there was a tournament with four people on each team and you had very specific chips that you could use as in you are allowed to use frigates only. Uh, you're allowed to use tech one only, tech two didn't exist back then. You can use faction and that was it. So. We just took four of our best people and went nuts. Uh, and you did very well. I think you uh, almost won. Um, but <laughs> the guy no from... What's that? There is no such thing as almost winning. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Do or do not, says Yoda. Um, so you didn't do it. Uh, the guy from Corazor won. But your house became Queen 
anyway, or Empress. Uh, yep. How, how did you feel about that? I, we were never role players. I have no clue how we. Didn't matter. Okay. okay. <laughs> one guy, we did have one guy sneak into the succession uh, ceremonies with a fully loaded APOC, though, and going nuts on the uh, newly appointed emperor trying to kill it before the GMs killed him. But that's a different story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because people think of Sir Mole and Band of Brothers as this juggernaut of player activity in Nullsec, but what they don't realize is you guys were all dominating the Alliance Tournament First Dynasty, which is the first three years, and you were in the middle of lore. You were like, you played a pivotal role in lore for a pivotal house. So there's just lots of different strains of uh, you know how you were moving through the game. No, it's just part of creating content for your people because as a leader, that's what you're going to have to do. Create content for people to come and log in and enjoy themselves. That's all you do. Yeah. By the way, did you, uh, did you get any ships for that tournament? Uh, yes, we did. We got a bunch of silver magnets. So do you, do you still have those or did those get killed somewhere? And we got a total of four of those, and we got a Imperial Armageddon as well. Uh, I think First Corps, which was known back then as Homo Erectus, killed two of the Silver Magnets by being stupid as he was his. And the Imperial Armageddon, we sold for insane money when we needed money for something like paying MC, I think it was. Paying Mercenary Coalition. Yep. All right. So Mercenary Coalition and Band of Brothers are kind of synonymous with one another because you work together a lot. You remain uh they were very effective for you, especially in the uh then in the middle of I wouldn't say the middle, I'm not that sure on the details. Actually, Andrew, you can correct me if I'm wrong. There's this thing called Tortuga. Do you want to describe what that is, uh, Andrew or yeah, I mean, I mean, Selene can obviously do a, a way better job than I can, but uh, Tortuga was uh, essentially kind of like a um, mercenary power block in the in the in, in period basis uh, that was forged during the middle of the second stage of the Great War, if I'm not mistaken, um, as sort of a place for mercenary to go, you know, mercenary coalition to go and have a place to call its own. Um, I'd have to get a refresher on the history of that. And luckily we have some. Yeah, I wonder who we could ask. That. So if, I, if I, my brain fart can be, can be uh, healed, it's by Celine. So this is really easy. Um, I, I, I can sum this up in just a couple of sentences. I mean, there's a lot more to tell. But uh, basically, Tortuga was a really good idea at a really bad time. That's, that's, this, that's the essence of it at its easiest. Now... The, the other piece of this is, is that Tortuga was kind of this, this brainstorm idea from a lot of different guys from within MC at the time who were dissatisfied with the way things were, you know, the relationship was with Panda Brothers and everything else. And they wanted, to, they wanted to do a few different things. I, at the time, had been working at CCP for all, almost a year and one of the conditions that back then that was they didn't freeze your account they didn't do anything but they did say that if you get to a point in eve where you know you're too well known or too this or too that then you're going to have to look at making a choice between your job and the game 
And so I had reached that point where I was having to, I was literally being told that I had to make this choice. So I was stepping, I was trying to step away as much as I possibly could. And some shit had gone sour. And then there were a couple of different ideas. One of the bigger ideas and the one that I kind of liked the most was let's just drop everything and let's go back up to the north and let's kick, I believe it was Triumvirate who was in decline or Declan or however you want to pronounce it. And let's go up there and let's set up shop up there. And then we can make up our minds from that point forward. Do we stay the path and do we keep on going, uh, you know, alongside Band of Brothers or do we just cut ourselves off completely or what? But there was another group in the Alliance that had it in their head that like, no, we we really want to just we want to just completely change things. We like where we are. We don't want to move. Bob's already going to die. So let's just cut the fucking cord and go all out. And the, those voices kind of won out because I was literally like three weeks from having my accounts almost deactivated. And they, the guy I had turned the Alliance over to essentially to run, I was like within two or three weeks of turning it over to him officially, he got very sick in real life. And yet all of these machinations and all of these preparations had been made so from like within one or two days i got from doing being at a point where i thought i was done i thought i was going to be able to step away to being told no someone's got to step in and of course no one in mc and no one and like maybe only like five people in eve even had a clue that i was working at ccp so it was either i had to step in and take things from that point or drop the whole thing and then Everybody would know what I that, that was weird and that I was working at the company, and that would have been a giant shitstorm back then. So I ended up basically getting back in and fighting, I guess, a conflict or a war that I, my heart wasn't completely in. And I, I don't really want to say one way or the other, you know, things could have turned out differently, things could have been this or that. But as things progressed and as things got, you know, to where they were, I eventually got to a point where I was like, I, number one, can't play because the company didn't want me to play anymore. And number two, I wasn't particularly happy with it in the first place. So I shut the Alliance down about four or five months later. Um, the writing was already on the wall. Bob had already kind of held the line and was turning the tide. And so um, I shut everything down. And I even said in the post that, you know, that where I shut the Alliance down, that I wasn't pleased with the way that it had gone. So... Yeah, and that was and that was that, um, and it was shut down for better part of eight or nine years until a friend of mine convinced me to start it back up a couple of years ago. So, that's that's kind of the inside story of what happened. Um, you could talk for quite a while about the thing, you know, the in-game events that actually took place, which were quite dramatic and quite interesting. But um, yeah, that's that's most of where it came from. Yeah, you could make a really great war movie about, about Tortuga. Uh, just sort of like this uh, you know, side story that takes place in the midst of, of huge things that are happening in, in, the, in the rest of the universe. There's this incredible story of, of mercenaries like trying to figure out how to survive in the, in the rest of this sort of new Eve universe and figure out the new role. And all, there, I mean, there's so many like huge like climactic battles that just you didn't have space to go into every single one of them in empires of eve but like they're there like kind of lurking beneath the surface if you go and do the research on that stuff there's some incredible like last stand fights and climactic last moments it's, it's a really amazing story 
Yeah, it was it was painful. It really was. There was a lot that was going on at that time, and there was so much happening. And um, and it was, it, it, I don't have very, I have very bad memories of that time for a lot of different reasons. Uh, there was some really amazing fights that took place as a result of it, but I was. Yeah, it was a rough Christmas. Let me put it that way. <laughs> you and you and Sermole haven't really spoken since. Well, there's a com- there's a lot of different reasons for that. I think that we've talked a couple of times here and there um, uh, over the years. But uh, you're, you're sugarcoating. You're sugarcoating. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I am. Blow the, sh- of- so, blow the sugarcoating off let, that. Though. <laughs> yeah, let let put this into perspective because MC and Bob, we were tight. MC was our brother. They were doing a lot of stuff for us. Sometimes they would bill us as we would have to pay. Other times, hey, let's just say you paid, etc. So MC was doing a bunch of dirty works for Bob, like tons and tons and tons. And they were very, very successful. In the end, we carved out a piece of space for them as in, hey, go live here and keep on doing what you're doing. And... We were best buddies. Then from one day to the other, everything turned. And this is what Celine is speaking about. Yep. And he stepped away. And then all of a sudden, MC became something something totally different. And Tortuga, etc., blah, blah, was working with Bob for a bit. Not that very long. I'm not sure how long. But they were still doing Bob's biddings as in, okay, we're going to go attack this. Can you guys go do this so we distract enemies from doing whatever needs to be done and it was a perfect relationship as in fighting terms we could take our massive force of bob one direction we could send mc to do whatever needs to be done on the back end line say in the enemy space and get things done and then all of a sudden more or less without warning and in one day they flipped as in, we are no longer friends with Bob. We are going to start shooting Bobs. You are our enemies, Bob. And that hit everyone, every single one within Bob. And that one day is like, what the hell just happened? And why did it happen? So, yeah, Selena's trigger coding because we got pissed off. We got like so pissed off. And I have never heard the backstory before. This is the first time I've ever heard the backstory. Thanks, Celine. <laughs> well, Give some insight on what actually was going on because we could never figure out why. So well, we went why? from best buddies to natural born enemies, like tooth and claw, everything you had, the kitchen sink in one day. Yeah, and it's and it's and as I said earlier, I mean, I didn't mean to. I don't mean to sugarcoat the events that happened. No, it was it was it was fucked up. I even I even publicly acknowledged what happened, um, and it's something that's and it's something that stuck with me quite uh, quite a long time because uh, shortly after I closed MC, I probably didn't really play Eve uh, you know properly for the next couple of years as I was still at the company, but. The whole the whole way that that went down was if I had kept if I'd been able to stay at the helm, it wouldn't have happened like that, or it possibly wouldn't have happened at all. Um, and I don't make any excuses for what did happen. You know what happened happened. Um, and as Andrew said, yes, it makes for great story and and all these other things. But um, it's it's something that you know I've uh, 
I've tried to like make sure that anytime I'm ever faced with a situation like that again in the virtual world, uh, I've definitely tried to make sure that I have my hand firmly on the wheel and don't give it away because it's a prime example of what happens whenever it does. But no, I, as I said, I had a really, it was a rough Christmas. Um, I was, I was personally affected by the way that that relationship broke down. I was not happy about it at all. So, um, don't think that there was any glee involved in it, at least from my end. There might have been from some of my members, but I was not exactly pleased with it. But it is what it is. Hmm, very interesting. Uh, and so moving on to uh, Bob and their struggle with goons, this was and continues to be kind of the central theme of conflict in EVE Online. It's like the, the dividing line. So do you want to tell us how you saw goons when they first appeared and why you were so mad at them? Well, the goons were kind of like nothing back then. They were, uh, not sure what to call it, but the dirty kid on the street corner trying to be tough and speaking crap. And they were basically trying to be assholes to everyone and they were exploiting stuff. They built overlays on the client and stuff like that. So we, we kind of just shrugged them off. They weren't anything back then. And it took a long time for them to uh, actually become something. Uh, what eventually tipped them going public on their forums about a guy that died in our alliance and they were making fun of him and how he died. I know that's real life stuff and shouldn't really be part of a game, but that ticked off a bunch of people. And that's when we said, okay, hey, let's go kill these guys because they're assholes. Right. Uh, so I just want to say one thing. It is kind of interesting because when goons first showed up, I think that a lot of the initial reaction was not really hostile. Um, they were they were kind of a curiosity. There was like all these brand new players, and uh, it wasn't really seen, uh, at least like from my point of view, they weren't really seen as a threat or anything bad. They had a slightly different attitude, but then it did seem like over the course of like you know a few weeks that really changed. And then the incident that Molly's talking about happened, and instead of and instead of being like other groups, and granted, goons have changed a lot over the years, but back then, instead of kind of like stepping up and saying like, oh, well, you know, that was fucked up, you know, we're sorry, they kind of embraced it. And they, they kind of seemed like they wanted to take this bad boy, you know, edgy attitude and uh, shit just kind of exploded from there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was no accountability for them at the time because there was, they didn't have any ambition. Um, and that's one of the reasons why people like kind of took a liking to them at first was because it was just sort of like, hey, here's this different kind of person who now exists in Eve. And everybody was like, whoa, a new a new character that kind of like showed up in, in this story. And they're not really, they're not ambitious. They're not trying to take over the game world. Not they're not necessarily challenging the power structure right away. Um, and so there was there was kind of like a live and let live scenario where it was just sort of, here's some, here's some people we think are like kind of funny. Um, and then once once the, the politics get involved, it becomes a messier situation. Well, to the establishment, it, it, it kind of sounds like they would have been something of a, a bacteria or a virus, like not really a, another being, but just a kind of a, something that you would need to brush off because you got it on you kind of thing. Um, well, that's kind of what they were because, I mean, we started a campaign against them 
uh, evolution. And I think Bob was involved as well. Yeah, Bob was involved. And we went to their home space with the intent of wipe them out. And we stayed for a week and there was nothing left. And from that, I was more or less, okay, we're done. Let's go. And that's, I think, where everything is coming from or where it started. Because, okay, from that, they took the bad boy and just grew and ran with it. Well, Andrew, what do you think the secret to their success was? How did they grow from that little insignificant thing to something that was powerful enough to wage its own war? Well, I think about that a lot because I'm, I'm very, very fascinated by goons and, and goon history in, in, in EVE um, because of that factor, because of how quickly they grew and how, how and the strength of the social organizations are very, very fascinating things, regardless of the fact that it takes place in the video game or virtual world. And one of the things that I think is most interesting is that bacteria or viral image that you caught, you expanded upon a moment ago, um, because any organization in EVE any organization at all needs like an explanation for how their group functions. Like you need to be able to communicate to a single person why they should continue to be part of the grander whole of the organization. You know, why they should believe that being a part of this organization makes them stronger than they would be on their own, makes their individual actions count for more. And what goons came up with was the image of the virus. And I always find this so, so fascinating because it's sort of uniquely suited to Eve and the internet because each individual is kind of like an individual cell, but put together, they're, they're part of something larger. And you, you want to create some kind of an image where a person feels like if they, they put in one unit of effort, they'll get two units of, of reward back, you know, because they were part of the grander whole. And so being a part of the swarm, being, being a virus, it, it, hits on the idea that everybody in goons at the time knew that they individually sucked um but that being a part of this grander whole it it helped them understand why it didn't matter that they weren't as good one-on-one as one of their enemies Uh, the swarm is the same image and and that kind of imagery that storytelling it has been a huge huge strength of goons and that understanding of how to frame things for the individual person uh, i think is a huge huge part of their success and they do it in, in their propaganda they do it in their posting their speeches all this kind of stuff they're they're very focused on making the individual feel confident and feel sort of welcome and have a place in the larger whole yep well, a couple of the points of uh, in your book where I actually laughed out loud, <laughs> quotes from Matani, I think, who said, uh, and I work with him, and he is a funny guy. He said something like, when I first met these Russians, they sounded like, uh, you know, two aliens from the planet murder. <laughs> it's just so colorful, the language. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's part of it, too, is is having that sort of like blue collar attitude and, and a, and a a down-to-earth way of speaking just resonated with people in the modern era of the internet more than the old-school role-play stuff that people had never really had an experience with in modern Eve. New players from the new era of the internet were coming into that, and they had never heard stuff like that before. And they're like, well, who are these Who are these nerds who are trying to like rule the galaxy? And then here comes the goons, and like, oh, this makes sense to me. This is what power looks like on the internet. I understand this. Like, I'm going to follow this. Interesting how power looks like on the internet. I've got, a, I've got hours worth of thoughts on that particular subject if you want to do a different well, well, show. We'll talk, we'll talk <laughs> offline. I got to hear all your stuff. Um, the other thing they said that was funny was they they got a Titan too, but they didn't call Bruce uh, or oh, sorry, uh, yeah, Bruce or Bob or they called it the Goon Cannon, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, these guys become 
over time through either luck or perseverance or a whole new evolution of um, leveraging motivation, a powerful force. And then they get lucky. Uh, Sermola, you want to take us to like how you felt when uh, you were basically betrayed by one of the, your one of the directors that was inside of Band of Brothers? Right. Uh, <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, how I felt? I have no clue. That was more, I got the news one morning waking up. This is what happened. And then everyone was all over the place trying to figure out what to do, how to do, and how to get it sorted. And I mean, we knew kind of quickly who it was, but we didn't really get a motivation on why it was done. But basically, they tore down everything we had built in the last couple of years as an infrastructure in two minutes, thanks to a faulty game mechanic, I would say. Uh, but hey, that's what it is. And at that point, we were the big bad guy everyone wanted to kill. And we had set ourselves up to be the big bad boy that everyone wants to kill. It's just that at this moment, everything fell apart and everyone got the opportunity to come on our doorstep where we had no infrastructure left, nothing whatsoever. We had to start from scratch. And basically, the whole of Eve just converged on us where we were, which is fine, which is what we were looking for. But we had planned to be a little bit more defensive and actually being able to do something. So that was rough. That was very rough. But... Hey, that's the game. Well, it must have sucked because here you had just successfully defended Delve with Fortress Delve, right? And you guys were still very powerful. You could fend off a lot of people, but here you kind of got unplugged. Yeah, that's, I mean, that broke down 90% of our defenses in one stroke. In one minute, it was done. And yeah, we had to do what we could do, but in the end, there wasn't that much we could do. We could delay everything, but there was no way we were going to be able to pull that one off. Yeah. So uh, I, it was funny because when I was watching, there was a guy who was one of the announcers, the broadcasters, and he looks at the camera and just got a blank look on his face and saying, apparently my alliance has just been disbanded. <laughs> like that happened in the middle of a lot of people watching. Uh, so it was a very uh, present moment for a lot of people because uh, they were all gathered watching the, you know, in those days you couldn't just see a streamer. There was a streamer. It's a big deal to be watching the Alliance tournament. But um, to, to this day, like what, how do you actually view uh, Goon Swarm and what they've done with the game? Or, you know, it's been a long time and I wonder if you, uh, if, you know, what, if you have any thoughts on them as an entity. Well, goons are always going to be my enemy because in my view, they're still assholes. So they're always going to be my enemy. It's good for the game to have a common enemy to turn against. I just wish that those guys would actually stand up and fight more instead of running away every single time they stand up or get attacked. Uh, it's bad for the game that it's those people. could be someone else who would actually stand up and fight. And... Yeah, I don't like them. I could, I could just stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> Cut podcast over. 
There's this really amazing uh, YouTube video out there that you can actually just go look at for yourself where it's it's one, uh, probably like a 2008 barbecue and Mullay's, I, I think he actually has the pink cowboy hat, hat on. I'm not sure about that. They've been showing it during the stream. Oh, really? Okay. It was already seen it, but for people on the call who have any smoking a cigar and somebody holding the camera says like, send a message to goons and he takes a big long drag off the cigar and he's like, die. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, all right um thank you for that um let's let's kind of wrap up i don't think we get a, a better end than that but i do want to um give selena a chance to say anything about um that era like oh you were probably gone from the game right you were probably at ccp at the time yeah from about 2000 about mid 2008 until about 2011 i was i mean i was still playing i mean i was still like doing stuff you know as best you know as much as i could probably a bit more than folks would realize but um i i was i was pretty much out of it i didn't uh, i didn't really step back into eve properly until about i don't know spring summer 2012 uh, 2011 whenever uh, my corp joined pl and uh, prior to that no it was i i kept my hand in kept aware of things that were going on but uh, I wasn't playing an active part in any of it. But where are you guys now, Celine? You're you're back in the game. Yeah, um, uh, Janu January year two ago, what 2015? A friend of mine, a guy named Saber A, who's lot got his own history in Eve. He was tired of doing things a certain way, and he kind of came and spent a week asking me if he could, because I'd kept MC on ice uh, and never thought about doing anything with it again, really. But he convinced me to try and give it a shot. And I was half a foot out again, not really paying as much attention to Eve as I normally would have. And he, I, I gave him the keys, said, start it back up. See, you know, when it crashes and burns, let me know. And, <laughs> and it didn't. Um, he actually managed to get things rolling fairly well. And, uh, you know, a couple corpse joined up. Things got a little better. And then he... Um, and then World War B kicked off. And then we, he, you know, this is Sabre again, kind of had us involved in the forefront of that. And of course, you know, big war, steady content. I started, I screwed up and started playing again. And one thing led to another. And <laughs> here uh, about, uh, about six or seven months ago, he decided to retire from Eve and uh, officially handed the reins back over to me again. So now I'm running my old alliance and playing far, far more than uh, any sane person should. But, you know, it's the people. I, I, I still enjoy the people. I enjoy going to the events and talking to people and uh, doing stuff like this as well. So, yeah. Um, and, Sir Molly, you're an NC. Take, uh, you're not very visible. I think you only talk to your ship or something. <laughs> I, I went back to being active more or less in Evolution and NC Dog up until I would say the BR Dash massive, massive 14 hours battle took place. And that's kind of where I realized okay, as much fun as this is, I can't do 14 hour battles anymore. I am way too old. I got way too many kids and I got a family. So I'm just going to take on the grandpa role. Evolution is doing fine, still focusing on the people more than what they have or what skill points they have. And we're part of NC Dot, which is the perfect home for Revolution. And 
we're a different beast today than we was way back then because way back then we were a powerhouse on our own and today we're only a powerhouse when it comes to being old retired rich people i would say uh but yeah i'm still around still following everything even if i'm not on the battlefield i am probably somewhere in jita making money <laughs> Uh, and you, you did uh, like I did say earlier. Show 2015, we're taking out a pause in Iridia, uh, and that was a real, real thrill. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, do you approve of uh, NC Dot and how they're managing things, and you know, basically the landscape of Eve is going? Landscape of Eve needs to be shaken up. Uh, X2 crystallized. There needs to be more than two entities. Uh, right now, you have the goon side and you have the PLNC dot side, and that's it. And you basically got red versus blue, and you need to have a little bit more on that color spectrum. You need to have five, six, seven different entities so we're all capable of actually fighting because it's too few people are deciding the content for a very lot of people. Oh, that's a good point. And um, it's a lot of work for those few people. Yeah. yeah. As a leader in EVE, you are dedicating your life to EVE. Otherwise, you are not a leader in EVE. So it's your choice if you want to do it. But I've been there, I've done that, and I'm happy where I'm at. Uh, so this is the last point. Uh, I heard that you said, I already won Eve. I found my wife playing Eve. Yeah, 100% correct. I left Sweden in 2010, moved over to the US, and I married a Eve player, and we are still married. Well, congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Great. Well, this has been a treat. We should do it again if we can. Love to hear more of this stuff. We really only covered part of it and we didn't even get into the uh, details and stuff, but it's, it's been a real treat for me as a, as a player of EVE and I think for the audience uh, that will be hearing this. So thank you guys very much. Uh, Thanks so much. This was awesome. Yeah, it was good. Thanks. Yep. Thank you very much, uh, Carneros, uh, Andrew. Uh, Celine and Sermole for uh, giving us uh, this great show that we put out today. Thank you, audience, for showing up today. I want to thank uh, Will Glenn again for tipping $50. Thank you so much. And uh, the guys that have subscribed, uh, Kane, for 29 months of subscription. Really appreciate all this stuff. Thank you, guys. Uh, they're listening to the podcast, and you can support at uh, Patreon slash Matterall. And I uh, can't be thankful enough that Sermole decided to join us with Andrew. I think it was out of respect for Andrew that he decided to do this show. You should know that. Um, otherwise, uh, it's a very rare appearance, and we're very lucky to have uh, been able to have this happen. Uh, so thanks, guys, very much. That is all this week. We will see you next week on Talking in Stations. Talking in Stations.